Section twenty six of a half century of conflict. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A half century of conflict by Francis Parkman. Chapter fifteen, part one, sixteen ninety seven to seventeen forty one. France in the Far West. The occupation by France of the Lower Mississippi gave a strong impulse to the exploration of the West by supplying a base for discovery, stimulating enterprise by the longing to find gold mines, open trade with New Mexico, and get a fast hold on the countries beyond the Mississippi in anticipation of Spain, and to these motives was soon added the hope of finding an overland way to the Pacific. It was the Canadians, with their indomitable spirit of adventure, who led the way in the path of discovery. As a bold and hardy pioneer of the wilderness, the Frenchman in America has rarely found his match. His civic virtues withered under the despotism of Versailles, and his mind and conscience were kept in leading strings by an absolute church. But the forest and prairie offered him an unbridled liberty, which, lawless as it was, gave scope to his energies, till these savage wastes became the field of his most noteworthy achievements. Canada was divided between two opposing influences, on the one side were the monarchy and the hierarchy, with their principles of order, subordination, and obedience, substantially at one in purpose, since both wished to keep the colony within manageable bounds, domesticate it, and tame it to soberness, regularity, and obedience. On the other side was the spirit of liberty, or license, which was in the very air of this wilderness continent, reinforced in the chiefs of the colony by a spirit of adventure inherited from the Middle Ages, and by a spirit of trade born of present opportunities. For every official in Canada hoped to make a profit, if not a fortune, out of beaver skins. Kindred impulses in ruder forms possessed the humbler colonists, drove them into the forest, and made them hardy woodsmen and skilful bushfighters, though turbulent and lawless members of civilized society. Time, the decline of the fur trade, and the influence of the Canadian church gradually diminished this erratic spirit, and at the same time impaired the qualities that were associated with it. The Canadian became a more stable colonist and a steadier farmer, but for forest journeyings and forest warfare he was scarcely his former self. At the middle of the eighteenth century we find complaints that the race of voyageurs is growing scarce. The taming process was most apparent in the central and lower parts of the colony, such as the Côte de Beaupré, and the opposite shore of the St. Lawrence, where the hands of the government and the church were strong, while at the head of the colony, that is, about Montreal and its neighborhood, 
which touched the primeval wilderness, an uncontrollable spirit of adventure still held its own. Here, at the beginning of the century, this spirit was as strong as it had ever been, and achieved a series of explorations and discoveries which revealed the plains of the far west long before an Anglo-Saxon foot had pressed their soil. The expedition of one Lesseur to find what is now the state of Minnesota may be taken as the starting point of these enterprises. Lesseur had visited the country of the Sioux as early as 1683. He returned thither in 1689 with the famous voyager Nicholas Perrault. Four years later, Count Frontenac sent him into the Sioux country again. The declared purpose of the mission was to keep those fierce tribes at peace with their neighbors. But the governor's enemies declared that a contraband trade in beaver was the true object, and that Frontenac's secretary was to have half the profits. The Sioux returned after two years, bringing to Montreal a Sioux chief and his squaw, the first of the tribe ever seen there. He then went to France, and represented to the court that he had built a fort at Lake Pepin, on the upper Mississippi, that he was the only white man who knew the languages of that region, and that if the French did not speedily seize upon it, the English, who were already trading upon the Ohio, would be sure to do so. Thereupon he asked for the command of the upper Mississippi, with all its tributary waters, together with a monopoly of its fur trade for ten years, and permission to work its mines, promising that if his petition were granted, he would secure the country to France without expense to the king. The commission was given him. He bought an outfit and sailed for Canada, but was captured by the English on the way. After the peace, he returned to France, and begged for a renewal of his commission. Leave was given to him to work the copper and lead mines, but not to trade in beaver skins. He now formed a company to aid him in his enterprise, on which a cry rose in Canada that under pretense of working mines he meant to trade in beaver, which is very likely since to bring lead and copper in bark canoes from Montreal to the Mississippi and Lake Superior would cost far more than the metal was worth. In consequence of this clamour, his commission was revoked. Perhaps it was to compensate him for the outlays into which he had been drawn that the colonial minister presently authorised him to embark for Louisiana and pursue his enterprise with that infant colony instead of canada as his base of operations thither therefore he went and in april seventeen hundred set out for the sioux country with twenty-five men in a small vessel of the kind called a felucca still used in the mediterranean among the party was an adventurous youth named pennicott a ship carpenter by trade, who had come to Louisiana with Iberville two years before.
and who has left us an account of his voyage with Le Sueur. The party slowly made their way with sail and oar against the muddy current of the Mississippi till they reached the Arkansas, where they found an English trader from Carolina. On the 10th of June, spent with rowing and half-starved, they stopped to rest at a point fifteen leagues above the mouth of the Ohio. They had staved off famine with the buds and leaves of trees, but now, by good luck, one of them killed a bear, and soon after the Jesuit Limoges arrived from the neighboring mission of the Illinois, in a canoe well stored with provisions. Thus refreshed, they passed the mouth of the Missouri on the 13th of July, and soon after were met by three Canadians, who brought them a letter from the Jesuit Marest, warning them that the river was infested by war parties. In fact, they presently saw seven canoes of Sioux warriors bound against the Illinois, and not long after five Canadians appeared, one of whom had been badly wounded in a recent encounter with a band of Outagamies, Sacs, and Winnebagoes bound against the Sioux. To take one another's scalps had been for ages the absorbing business and favorite recreation of all these western tribes. At or near the expansion of the Mississippi called Lake Pepin, the voyagers found a fort called Fort Perrault, after its builder, and on an island near the upper end of the lake, another similar structure built by Le Sueur himself on his last visit to the place. These forts were mere stockades, occupied from time to time by the roving fur traders, as their occasions required. Towards the end of September, Le Sueur and his followers reached the mouth of the St. Peter, which they ascended to Blue Earth River. Pushing a league up this stream, they found a spot well suited to their purpose, and here they built a fort, of which there was great need, for they were soon after joined by seven Canadian traders, plundered and stripped to the skin by the neighboring Sioux. Le Sueur named the new post Fort Louilier. It was a fence of pickets enclosing cabins for the men. The neighboring plains were black with buffalo, of which the party killed four hundred and cut them into quarters, which they placed to freeze on scaffolds within the enclosure. Here they spent the winter, subsisting on the frozen meat, without bread, vegetables, or salt, and according to Pennicote, thriving marvelously, though the surrounding wilderness was buried five feet deep in snow. Band after band of Sioux appeared with their wolfish dogs and their sturdy and all-enduring squaws burdened with the heavy hide coverings of their teepees or buffalo-skin tents. They professed friendship and begged for arms. Those of one band had blackened their faces in mourning for a dead chief, and calling on Le Sueur to share their sorrow, they wept over him and wiped their tears on his hair. Another party of warriors arrived with yet 
deeper cause of grief being the remnant of a village half exterminated by their enemies they too wept profusely over the french commander and then sang a dismal song with heads muffled in their buffalo robes le sieur took the needful precautions against his dangerous visitors but got from them a large supply of beaver skins in exchange for his goods when spring opened he set out in search of mines and found not far above the fort those beds of blue and green earth to which the stream owes its name of this his men dug out a large quantity and selecting what seemed to be the best stored it in their vessel as a precious commodity with this and good store of beaver skins le sueur now began his return voyage for louisiana leaving a canadian named de Arac and twelve men to keep the fort till he should come back to reclaim it promising to send him a canoe-load of ammunition from the illinois but the canoe was wrecked and de Arac discouraged abandoned fort louillier and followed his commander down the mississippi le sueur with no authority from government had opened relations of trade with the wild sioux of the plains whose westward range stretched to the black hills and perhaps to the rocky mountains he reached the settlements of louisiana in safety and sailed for france with four thousand pounds of his worthless blue earth repairing at once to versailles he begged for help to continue his enterprise his petition seems to have been granted after long delay he sailed again for louisiana fell ill on the voyage and died soon after landing before seventeen hundred the year when le sueur visited the st peter little or nothing was known of the country west of the mississippi except from the report of indians the romances of la hontan and matthew sagian were justly set down as impostures by all but the most credulous in this same year we find le moyne de iberville projecting journeys to the upper missouri in hopes of finding a river flowing to the western sea in seventeen o three twenty canadians tried to find their way from the illinois to new mexico in hope of opening trade with the spaniards and discovering mines in seventeen o four we find it reported that more than a hundred canadians are scattered in small parties along the mississippi and the missouri and in seventeen o five one laurain appeared at the illinois declaring that he had been high up the missouri and had visited many tribes on its borders a few months later two canadians told bienville a similar story in seventeen o eight nicholas de la salle proposed an expedition of a hundred men to explore the same mysterious river and in seventeen seventeen one hubert laid before the council of marine a scheme for following the missouri to its source since he says 
not only may we find the mines worked by the spaniards but also discover the great river that is said to rise in the mountain where the missouri has its source and is believed to flow to the western sea and he advises that a hundred and fifty men be sent up the river in wooden canoes since bark canoes would be dangerous by reason of the multitude of snags in seventeen fourteen juchereau de saint denis was sent by la mothe cadillac to explore western louisiana and pushed up red river to a point sixty-eight leagues as he reckons above natchitoches in the next year journeying across country towards the spanish settlements with a view to trade he was seized near the rio grande and carried to the city of mexico the spaniards jealous of french designs now sent priests and soldiers to occupy several points in texas juchereau however was well treated and permitted to marry a spanish girl with whom he had fallen in love on the way but when in the autumn of seventeen sixteen he ventured another journey to the mexican borders still hoping to be allowed to trade he and his goods were seized by order of the mexican viceroy and lest worse should befall him he fled empty-handed under cover of night in march seventeen nineteen bernard de la harpe left the feeble french post at nanchitoches with six soldiers and a sergeant his errand was to explore the country open trade if possible with the spaniards and establish another post high up red river he and his party soon came upon that vast entanglement of driftwood or rather of uprooted forests afterwards known as the red river raft which choked the stream and forced them to make their way through the inundated jungle that bordered it as they pushed or dragged their canoes through the swamp they saw with disgust and alarm a good number of snakes coiled about twigs and boughs on the right and left or sometimes over their heads these were probably the deadly water moccasin which in warm weather is accustomed to crawl out of its favourite element and bask itself in the sun precisely as described by la harpe their nerves were further discomposed by the splashing and plunging of alligators lately wakened from their wintry torpor still they pushed painfully on till they reached navigable water again and at the end of the month were as they thought a hundred and eight leagues above natchitoches in four days more they reached the nasanites these savages belonged to a group of stationary tribes only one of which the caddos survives to our day as a separate community their enemies the chickasaws osages arkansas and even the distant illinois waged such deadly war against them that according to la harpe 
the unfortunate Nassanites were in the way of extinction, their numbers having fallen within ten years from twenty-five hundred souls to four hundred. La Harpe stopped among them to refresh his men and build a house of cypress wood as a beginning of the post he was ordered to establish. Then, having heard that a war with Spain had ruined his hopes of trade with New Mexico, he resolved to pursue his explorations. With him went ten men, white, red, and black, with twenty-two horses bought from the Indians, for his journeyings were henceforth to be by land. The party moved in a northerly and westerly course, by hills, forests, and prairies, past two branches of the Wichita, and on the 3rd of September came to a river which La Harpe calls the southwest branch of the Arkansas, but which, if his observation of latitude is correct, must have been the main stream not far from the site of Fort Mann. Here he was met by seven Indian chiefs, mounted on excellent horses, saddled and bridled after the Spanish manner. They led him to where, along the plateau of the low treeless hills that bordered the valley, he saw a string of Indian villages extending for a league and belonging to nine several bands, the names of which can no longer be recognized, and most of which are no doubt extinct. He says that they numbered in all six thousand souls, and their dwellings were high, dome-shaped structures, built of clay, mixed with reeds and straw, resting, doubtless, on a frame of bent poles. With them were also some of the roving Indians of the plains, with their conical teepees of dressed buffalo skin. End of section 26